You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled, What is Necessary in These Urgent Times? This is Lecture 3, entitled, Knowledge of the Human Being Through Knowledge of the World, given in Dornach on January 11, 1920. The lecture I offered yesterday contains some things that may seem far afield. Yet if we want to perceive truly the spiritual and social necessities of our time, we must familiarize ourselves with these sorts of concepts about the world. Our thinking and our sensations, indeed our whole being, must be filled with the feelings that come from these concepts. I would like to briefly summarize the main thrust of yesterday's discussion. It is something that was already known to us, in a more abstract way, from other perspectives, that the substance of the human being is actually comprised of a twofold organization. We could even go so far as to say it is comprised of a threefold organization, but nowadays we factor in that third intermediary aspect to a far lesser extent. First, we have the organization of the human head, and then we have the organization of the rest of the human organism, the limbs and the torso. For those of the present day who demand comfortable and familiar thoughts, this is rather difficult to understand, because people nowadays prefer to have everything neatly divided, and if there are gaps between the divisions, so much the better. Thus, when one speaks of the head and the rest of the body, people like to imagine it like so. The head goes from here down to the neck, and then everything else is just the rest. This, of course, is not at all what we mean. In a certain sense, one could say that the entire human being is part of the central organization, the head being. This aspect of our organism simply expresses itself most clearly in the area of the human head. Similarly, the torso and limb organization also extends into the entire human being. These aspects of our being simply express themselves most clearly in the torso and limbs, respectively. We have senses in all the different parts of our body, but we always think of our head, the central part of our organism, when we think of our senses, because the senses concentrated in that area of our physical body are the most highly developed. From this you will now understand what I meant earlier when I referred to the multifold organization of the human being. In addition, we saw yesterday that this organization is a necessary arising from some inner powers or circumstances in the human being, but that, in fact, the human being is also integrated into the cosmos, 
in one way through the head and in another different way through the torso and limbs. The head is the most highly developed part of our body, but actually it does not belong to the earth and sun spheres. Instead, it is a part of the moon sphere. This is shown not only by esoteric knowledge, but also by carefully observing embryology. The powers that are at work in our head are the powers of the moon, and in our torso and limbs the powers of the earth and sun are at work. The entire course of human evolution on earth is connected with this twofold nature of human existence. And now the moment has come when we must examine how we can take a step forward in this evolution, a step that is dependent upon how we came to be in a position to activate the physical structure of our human form. In the course of human evolution on earth, the first thing that we find is everything that played itself out in human spirit and soul life prior to the mystery of Golgotha. This was the great break in the whole course of human evolution. And if you take together everything that occurred up to the mystery of Golgotha, the ancient Hebrew, the ancient Jewish cultures, then you will say to yourself, everything that developed up to the mystery of Golgotha had a necessarily unified character. The ancient pagan cultures, which developed along the most varied paths in the wake of the mystery of antiquity, parenthesis, as I have described it in my book title An Outline of Esoteric Science, close parenthesis, all had a unified character in certain respects. What do I mean by this? The unified culture to which I am referring existed because humanity was in a primeval state. It existed because during this time period, all across the world, primeval revelations came to various peoples simultaneously. But how could such a thing have happened? A primeval revelation occurring everywhere at once? It was possible, because in these ancient times the human center, the human head, if I may indeed refer to it as such, had not yet developed as highly as it has in our time, or for that matter as it had by the time of the mystery of Golgotha. It was, in a sense, that I described in my lecture yesterday, still very much alive. It was still filled with the possibility of having dreams that had no relationship to earthly experiences or emotions. It was still able to call up the kinds of dream experiences that the human being, parenthesis, a human being possessing a much, much older consciousness than our own, close parenthesis, had during moon evolution. This unified human character, this openness in the human head, those who created the primeval revelations used all of this to lead humanity to the place in evolution where it was to be when the mystery of Golgotha occurred. The things that were revealed and that humanity was able to receive because of the structure of its organism at that time led to those ancient times, led in those ancient times to a general 
all-encompassing wisdom, as opposed to what we know these days, that gradually faded as the years passed. We would not be satisfied these days with the kind of wisdom that they possessed, for it was composed of clairvoyant dream images. These days we want much more defined and clear mental pictures, but these defined, clear mental pictures have not gotten us very far. An ancient wisdom once permeated all of humanity. Out of this wisdom much was spoken about the essence that ruled over nature, the powers that controlled nature, but very little was spoken about human beings themselves. Humanity had not yet arrived at its earth consciousness. It was still being led by the tether of the higher powers. Humanity might have been wise, but the light of self-consciousness was not yet lit. The Apollonian percept, Know thyself, was held up before the people as a beacon to strive for, but perhaps never reached, but, but perhaps never reach, a cry shouted into the future by pioneering Greek spirits. There was a wisdom back then, one that dealt primarily with nature, and especially with the nature of the cosmos. Then, into these people's lives, came the old Hebrew revelation. When you meditate upon this ancient Hebrew revelation, you will find that there is something strange about it. It is entirely different from the ancient pagan revelations that had spread far and wide during the time in which the Hebrew revelation appeared. It was ashamed to participate in this natural, worldly wisdom of the time. It shrank back from it. As far as nature and the world were concerned, the old Hebrew revelation had only one thing to say. Quote, God created them along with human beings, and it is humanity's task in this world to serve God. Close quote. The entire ancient Hebrew revelation intended to describe to people how they could best serve Yahweh. What part of the human body was called upon in this ancient Hebrew revelation? What was not called upon was the part that had received the ancient pagan revelations, the central organism, the head which could still call up memories of the ancient moon evolution. When it came to Hebrew revelation, this part could not be called upon. Instead, an appeal had to be made to the rest of the bodily organism, the limbs and torso. But remember, I said yesterday, that these other parts of the human organism can still understand and take up what comes from the moon, because they are creations of the sun. And so, what comes from the moon is what, in its most extreme form, leads people entirely into illusions and can also lead to inner revelations. This is the unique content of the Hebrew revelation. It is first and foremost concerned only with the human being. The human being stands at the center of this ancient Hebrew revelation. But during the time prior to the mystery of Golgotha, Humanity had no self-consciousness, no knowledge of the individual human being. Therefore, this ancient Hebrew revelation traveled a path to humanity by way of something else, 
namely by way of the Jewish culture, the Jewish people as a collective. The Jewish religion was initially not a religion of individual human beings. It centered not on individuals, but on the collective Hebrew people. It was a folk religion. It spoke of human beings, but only by way of the collective folk. By the time of the mystery of Golgotha, two important things were present in the world, an ancient and fading pagan wisdom that centered on nature and the world, and human self-consciousness in the early form of folk consciousness. Then, in the context of these things, the mystery of Golgotha occurred. At the time, it could be understood only by the kinds of wisdom and knowledge already present in the world. We must be careful to distinguish the facts, what happened at the mystery of Golgotha, from the means by which they could be understood, the means by which they could be felt. The pagans could understand it only with what remained of their natural worldly wisdom. The Jews could understand it only with the knowledge that had come to them in their revelation. These were the ways in which the mystery was initially understood. The vestiges of the pagan wisdom expressed itself in the Gnostic interpretations of the events at Golgotha. The awareness that came from the Jewish revelations developed progressively into the Catholic, that is to say the Roman Catholic interpretation of the mystery of Golgotha. And in order for the mystery of Golgotha to be understood at all, it was necessary for the interpretations and understandings of it to travel by way of these two separate earthly streams. Of course, in time, things developed further. People eventually lost their ability to understand the old pagan wisdom, because it was already fading by the time of the mystery and because it had originated so long before. They became too comfortable with other ideas to continue propagating Gnosticism into future generations. Only a very small part of the ancient pagan understanding of the world remained. This became one of the two streams. Though the Jewish inheritance was much fresher and more intense, it contained none of the worldly wisdom of the pagans. It spoke only of human beings and of laws imposed upon those humans. It propagated itself in the Church of the West. What was left of the ancient pagan wisdom, whose origins could no longer be remembered, remained behind as concepts that would eventually become natural science. Galileo, Giordano Bruno, and Copernicus took up these final vestiges of the ancient pagan wisdom using them as the seeds for new research into the nature of the world. No wonder, then, that eventually this became something altogether unsettling. Only the very last abstract vestiges of the ancient pagan wisdom remained to be utilized in understanding the things that were received through the new medium of natural science. And no bridges were to be found between this wisdom and what human beings knew from their experience of the Jewish revelation. Things moved forward in this way, and it is in this state that they continue to exist to this day. We have now a science that is working with only the very last shards of the last nuggets 
of ancient pagan wisdom, from which it can derive no means of understanding human beings at all. Consequently, the science reached its zenith in the 18th century, foregoing any actual understanding of the human being, and choosing instead to understand what happens when you see a human being as the final result in a chain of animal evolution. Not to understand the human being, but rather to understand the most highly developed animal and call that a human being, this was the ideal of that science, working with the last broken shards of the final nuggets of pagan wisdom. Everything associated with the Jewish revelation gradually lost the possibility of saying anything about the natural world in what it had to offer about the human being. Take a look at theology in the form into which it has now developed and see if you can find anything that would offer a satisfactory explanation for our modern consciousness of even the most simple natural phenomena. It is certainly true that moral considerations could be tacked onto natural phenomena from this tradition. But the moral claim that God sent an earthquake to Messina in order to punish the people there is not acceptable for modern consciousness and the ability to build bridges between the work of the gods and the things that occur in the natural world has been lost to theology. For that reason it is, in many respects, nothing more than an empty phrase now, whereas our natural science has, in a very grandiose manner, laid out a tremendous amount of material that contains countless secrets but can do nothing with them for it lacks the concepts that would enable it to connect these things with one another. This division led eventually to the development of an altogether new form of consciousness, to the development of things like agnosticism, which claims an enlightened person is one who can assert human beings are in no position to know anything of the true nature of things. Human beings are simply not organized in a way that allows them to understand anything about the true nature of things. Such assertions are opposed to the deep longings and strivings that exist in us, and these longings, longings must fight back against them. Our desire to know things about the world, the organization of our society, all these things rebel against such assertions. In the future we must come to see how we are to move forward because at the moment we are stuck in a very old time, hindered by our world conceptions and our ideas. What has Jewish revelation brought into the world? The most recognizable thing that it has brought into the world is the politics of nationalism. After exerting its influence on the Roman Empire, the politics of nationalism has wound its way through history into our own time period. And what are the most influential people in politics currently striving to do in the world? Stir up nationalism. But this is politics that comes from ancient Hebrew culture. In terms of our public life, we have not yet moved on to Christianity. <clears throat> we are still living in the Old Testament, and it is part of our mission in these times 
to move society toward and into Christianity. But this advancement cannot occur unless it is supported by a similar progression into Christianity in the scientific fields. For that, however, it is essential that we come to truly understand the human being. Take a moment to reflect on my book titled An Outline of Esoteric Science. In that book, so much is said about cosmic evolution, about the evolution of Saturn, the Sun, the Moon, the Earth, and so on, that the, in quotes, truly clever people of our times will become either afraid or anxious, or be prompted to laugh or to become angry. If you consider the book's content more exactly, you will find that everything that is presented as knowledge about the world and the cosmos is simultaneously knowledge about the human being. In all of that knowledge about the world, there also exists knowledge about the human being. The things that human development owes to Saturn, the way that development continued from that point forward, and the way other forms of existence were incorporated into this process, all of this is considered. In the things presented there, you cannot separate knowledge about the world from knowledge about the human being. But in these times, the union of worldly and human knowledge is a Christian demand in the sciences, just as it is a Christian demand in society, that when considering another person, we learn to disregard all other associations and see the other only as a human being. The latter is something about which people have fantasized in empty phrases for a long time, but in reality we have never actually achieved it. In reality, national identity continues to exist as an overwhelming force in the political life of this world, and the human being is constantly subsumed under the consideration of national ties. What must come to replace these considerations of national identity are relationships between individuals built on a true feeling of what the human being is. But the founding of these relationships requires a certain inner strength of spirit, an inner strength of the human soul. And if we ask ourselves, did the human being grow stronger in soul during the so-called blessed 19th century? If we ask ourselves this, we find, if we are honest and sincere, that no matter where we choose to look, the human being did not grow stronger, but rather weaker in terms of the intensity of its concepts and ideals. Those of you who know me well understand what is meant by this. I would like to interrupt my lecture here with a personal anecdote. Several decades ago, I was having a conversation with a man in Vienna, who since then has made quite a name for himself as an historian. We were talking with one another about the development of Germany and the German people. The man articulated his abstract perspective on the matter as follows. Well, Germany has developed, and it is possible that it will just keep developing in the same ma matter that it has been. Possibly they want to say here the same manner that it has been. I said, that is just an abstraction. It is not something taken from observations of reality. As far as I am concerned, it is the same as saying, here's a plant. It has already produced fruit, 
and now it will produce new flowers and then fruit, then flowers, and it will just continue like that forever. If the plant has already produced flowers and fruit, it is not possible to say it will just keep doing the same thing over and over again. It is certainly true that the flower seed could in turn produce something new, a whole new plant, but it is not possible to imagine that from the flower the old plant will again emerge in a new form that would continue in the way it had before. And it quoted that. I went on to say, quote, the substance, the essence of German existence, came to fruit and flower in the time of Goethe, Schiller, Herder, and Hegel. That was a high point. Then that, that cannot simply be sustained and continued. Since then we have moved into a period of decadence. Since then we have been declining. Close quote. These were the ideas I expressed back then. I found little understanding, as you might imagine. For by then we had already moved into the time when such ideas were too intense for the human soul to grasp. I was left to think about how different it must have been, even as late as the middle of the nineteenth century. At that time in German development there was a man who wrote a literary history. Gervinus was his name, I'm going to spell it that way, G-E-R-V as in victory, I-N-U-S, Gervinus. You might not like Gervinus very much, for his whole literary history, Trappi Gervinus, sorry. He, you might not like Gervinus very much, for his whole literary history has an extremely radical bent. Namely, it ends with Goethe's death, and then entreats the following generations to simply continue into the future by writing in the old literary style, as if it were possible for new flowers to grow out of the leaves of a plant. Back then one could be so radical as to say, quote, It is all over now that Goethe is dead. If you want to continue to develop, you will have to look for somewhere new to start. Close quote. Gervinus was not able to offer all of this, but he at least saw the conclusion of the old and drew a sharp line under it. It is certainly true that since that time a lot of beautiful poetry has been written in Germany, but it has all been in imitation of the greats. The essence that flowed in Herder, Goethe, and Scheller flows no longer, nor is the philosophical essence, the essence that flowed in Hegel or Schelling, the essence that flowed in Fichte. Only once since then has a new tone been brought into the world, and that was when Hammerling, later in his life, wrote title Homunculus, but that also became a satire. Even back then, the call for something new, for some true understanding of the beginning of an entirely new civilization, was already waiting at the door. This call for a new beginning needs now to permeate the entire world, for therein lies the only hope of salvation for the future of human evolution. Everything must be wiped out that does not further that evolution. You can clearly observe an outward indication of the kinds of things that need to be wiped out in the desperate way that old-world conceptions are again being taken up nowadays. In order to say anything now, these old conceptions are called upon. One of the leading minds of contemporary Central Europe has made an assertion that clearly comes out of the decadent consciousness of these times 
and that clearly shows the sort of thing that we cannot keep to in this day and age. This man poses the question, how can we return to moral life? He observes that the need for an older form of morality has shown itself in the last five years. This lie has been victorious in all peoples and nations. The old Hebrew Yahweh politics have taken such a strong hold on so many peoples that they would, that they now would like to believe that long ago in Palestine there was only one united Jewish nation. And so now all peoples want for themselves the kind of political support that the Jews in Palestine were able to get for themselves back then. They would like everything to be as it was. They would like to govern the world in a way that excludes all the annoyances of Christianity. The content is lacking. In these desires, people are clutching at things that actually are void of content. Instead of seeking new sources of morality and new fruitful spiritual worldviews, people ask, quote, what is to be the source of a new morality, close quote. And then they answer, quote, having power is an indispensable means for achieving something good in the world. Therefore, you should strive to gain the power necessary, parenthesis, if you do not already possess it, close parenthesis, for doing good, close quote. People would like to have something good to do in the world, and they beautifully advise one another to seek the power to do that good. A second justification for this new ethics is as follows. With the power that you already possess, you can do some good. Therefore, you should always use the power you have for the achievement of good. But first you must have some good to do. First you must be able to recognize what is good. The advice that people give is the opposite of what spiritual science must spread throughout the new human civilization. For spiritual science has nothing to do with trying to find something on the basis of having power. You can only found something on the basis of power when you are working with a group of people collectively. When one human being stands before another, it is impossible to found anything on the basis of power. It is only possible to found something on the basis of the things that can develop in the human being so that the other person has some worth. We all have a worth to discover and to develop within ourselves that will allow us to accomplish something for the sake of humanity. And each of us must simultaneously develop within ourselves a receptivity that allows us to recognize this worth in others. This is the only possible means of forming a foundation for the morality of the future, to develop our own individual worth and to become able to recognize that worth in others. To put this another way, all morality will have to be built on real trust, because people did not want to move toward this perspective. They could not understand the moral demands found in my book titled The Philosophy of Freedom. In that book, a so-called moral individualism was founded, built on the understanding that when everything that is to be developed in a human being is in fact developed, that individual has no need for external laws and is able to exert some influence on how people will behave when they interact with each other in daily life. 
At the time the book was published, I said to some people, quote, Look at what we do when we walk down the road, some on this side, some on the other. Do we need to have laws in order to avoid bumping into each other? The fact that some people walk on the left and others on the right is simply a demand of existence, a demand that people quite sensibly observe. Close quote. This is what it means to conduct oneself morally, when the things that lie in the very essence of the human being are truly developed and brought into reality. Without this there will be no moral code of the future. This is also the only form of morality that would, tr- that would truly be built on a renewed understanding of Christianity. It must be built on what the Christ said, quote, Whatever you do for another human being, you do for me. Close quote. The Christ came into the midst of humanity so that every individual human being would be able to recognize the worth of all other human beings. And if the people of the world were to truly treat each other in this manner, it would provide a foundation for a new morality. This would also mean that from our modern perspective we would come to a new understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. This mystery of Golgotha is a fact, an event. The teachings of the mystery are not the most important things to come out of that event for these teachings must change with every passing age. The most important thing to come out of that event is simply the fact that it happened. It is becoming increasingly clear that for the religious faiths of the present, the mystery of Golgotha is greatly decreasing in significance. They see no value in understanding that event with the consciousness of this age. They see value only in continuing to spread and propagate their teachings. But these teachings are becoming increasingly unable to grasp the meaning of the mystery of Golgotha. And the result is that now we have a new and strange variety of theology in the world, one in which people no longer speak about the Christ, but simply about the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the simple man who wandered about in Palestine like some kind of Socrates. As a result, people cannot understand why the few who do still speak about the Christ speak about him as the pivotal point in the entire development of humanity. It was in that moment that the questions now posed to present-day humanity were first so seriously set down. And it is precisely the seriousness, the gravity of those questions that must now be recognized. But they must be worked with in harmony with the sciences on the one hand and with society on the other. These matters are all interwoven. I am sure that it would seem incredibly peculiar to a present-day traditionally educated academic if you were to tell him that the field of botany must become Christian, but it must become Christian, meaning that the spirit that so deeply moved humanity in its inner core must work its way into all things, including botany. And socially-minded people, but only a few of them, only a few groups of these socially-minded people, speak about the idea that Christian attitudes, parenthesis, it might be perhaps better to say, quote, ancient Christian attitudes, close quote, close parenthesis, 
must be incorporated into how we conduct ourselves in interactions with other human beings. Apart from this, no particular worth has been placed on infusing social ideas with Christian principles. There is a third option for how we might come to understand these matters, but finding it would require that we learn both to find the Christ in the world and to ignite within ourselves the ability to understand the Christ once we have found him. In all aspects of our lives, in society as a whole as well as individual encounters, two things must work and develop in conjunction with one another. The first is a certain kind of human worth, and the second is the ability to recognize and trust this human worth and to allow our recognition and trust of it to permeate the encounters that we have with other human beings. Little footnote, there's a, in this last part of the sentence it says, the first is a certain kind human worth. I said kind of human worth because I thought it needed that word. I'm not sure what that means. The first is a certain kind human worth. It might be a typo. And the second is the ability to recognize and trust this human worth and to allow our recognition and trust of it to permeate the encounters that we have with other human beings. Insofar as the people of the 19th century understood the presence of a new spiritual impulse toward understanding anew the mystery of Golgotha, they spoke of, in quotes, practical Christianity. At that point, Christianity had become about as unpractical as it could be. Now, in the wake of recent developments in human evolution, it is indeed necessary that as many people as possible find the energy to recognize that in fact a new spiritual revelation is attempting to enter the flow of human evolution and to see how this new revelation must be understood by humankind. For as long as we allow our spiritual lives to be pawns to exterior powers in the world, be they the state or some other external power, our spiritual lives will never be afforded the opportunity to take up the impulse of this spiritual revelation. This is why it is necessary for our spiritual lives to be allowed to stand alone on their own two feet, as we are calling for in the idea of threefolding. Only then will our spiritual lives be allowed to develop according to their own impulses. It is out of these impulses that science will be saturated with spiritual methodology, and it is subsequently the spiritual methods in science that will ignite our ability to permeate the social life with spirit. In our social deeds, in this social life, we must teach people to realize and actualize the spiritual. In order to do this, we must first overcome what we might nowadays call quote, word husks, close quote. For right now we are living a spiritual life filled with word husks, with empty phrases. It is possible these days to hear a person speak very beautifully of things with a pleasing content, and then, upon considering the speaker more closely, to find a soul that is void of any spiritual content. How can this be? 
because these days people all over the world are able to string together these empty phrases into something. There is no need, actually, to have a connection with the things that buzz about enclosed in word husks. There is no other way to rediscover a connection with the spiritual but to seek out a guide that will truly enable the human soul to reach the spirit on its own. This guide can be found only when the one who seeks it does so with the understanding that the human being can become what it is meant to become in the world only when it does not remain in the realm of earthly things, physical senses and physical powers. When it develops something within itself that is able to move beyond the merely earthly, beyond those things that can be taken directly from the surrounding physical world. We are born into the world with certain (coughs) aptitudes. These inborn aptitudes are then developed in our schooling. But the driving impulses behind education are vestiges of the past, of older traditions. We must come to understand that in every human being there is a hidden seed that does not come from our material incarnation or from the impulses that lie behind our education and upbringing. We must hold the belief that in every human being alive today is something that can be awakened only by spiritual forces and by maintaining the conviction that these spiritual forces exist. In the things that currently exist in our upbringing and our life, we can experience only the Yahweh consciousness. The Christ consciousness can be awakened when we believe not only in the evolution of humanity, but also in the transformation that will occur in human beings when they believe that something will develop in them that has nothing to do with the aptitudes and predispositions they received from their ancestors, but rather is a part of them because they each have lived through earlier incarnations in previous earthly periods. At one time the principle of lineage predominated in human existence and outshone the things that were carried over from previous incarnations. Now inherited characteristics are less important and those characteristics that we carry from previous soul incarnations and not our blood have become ever stronger. This is something that we each can bring to consciousness. And when it truly lives in the consciousness of even one human being, that person will encounter others with a set of feelings entirely different from what is typical nowadays. With these words I have described to you, parenthesis, though perhaps haltingly, for they deal with a very broad topic, close parenthesis, something we must incorporate into our evolution as human beings. When, when this demand is made on our lives, it is met with the harshest of judgments in the world. It is opposed bitterly. And I have had cause in the past to tell you about certain oppositions to what we refer to here as the anthroposophical worldview. I would like to tell you about two things of this sort today. Recently I read you a letter by our friend Dr. Stein, who illustrated, in a manner refreshing to the heart, the story of how a churchman was confronted 
when his assistant, in an attempt to account for a passage in the Bible that sounded somewhat anthroposophical, went so far as to claim, even Christ makes mistakes. That is what he said. So not he, the churchman, is making a mistake, but rather Christ. When I went to Stuttgart, I was told that from within our circle a number of opinions and complaints had been filed about this letter, about how harsh it is to confront an old man in such a manner, one who had even read some of my works. Unfortunately, this is actually so widespread in our circles that in the very moment someone begins to get involved in making a serious point about something, that person is stabbed in the back by those who, it would seem, like nothing more than to support a factious or sectarian perspective. This is something I feel I must mention. The second thing I must tell you about is the slanderous remarks that have now made their way through the German press, remarks whose underhanded sources are well known to me, parenthesis, that in particular I would like to mention here, close parenthesis, sources for whom the actual content makes no difference. For when it comes to the people who propagate such things, it is not a matter of whether they believe the things they are spreading. All that matters to them is to fabricate something that will discredit a person or movement that is uncomfortable to them. And so, despite the dim light in this hall, I would like to read this unenlightened publication that is currently making the rounds in some of the German press. Quote, the Theosophist Dr. Steiner as henchman of the Entente, the Mannheimer General Anzeiger, has received reports from Berlin that the Theosophist Dr. Rudolf Steiner, who has a following of several million people, close quote, I want to make this expressly clear, this sentence for those who find the means to peer into the deeper chambers of the present is particularly argumentative, and when the time comes that such attacks are intensified even further, you will see why such attacks are spoken alongside these other slanderous things. Quote, Steiner founded a league in support of the threefolding of the social organism, a league that was originally to be simply a religious socialist collective before coming into contact with the Bolshevists and Communists. It now practices a form of unusual and unsavory political agitation. The Berliner Zeitung learned the following from reports out of Dresden. According to authentic and irreproachable sources, close quote, I would like to draw your attention to the tone here, quote, the Society for the Threefold Social Order, quote, I'm sorry, let me read that again, after the quote closed, um, Steiner says, I would like to draw your attention to the tone here, and then quote again, the Society for the Threefold Social Order has found out the name of all those officials who were supposedly active in reactionary movements and are collecting material and testimonies about their actions against the rights of the people, which are then to be delivered to the Entente with the goal of extraditing these individuals. The verity of these accusations makes no difference whatsoever to Herr Steiner and his comrades, and that they are not afraid to make use of altogether false evidence is proven by a passage taken from a letter which reads, Accusations of theft should be left out, because in those cases it is easier to prove that the accusation is false. Similarly, unbelievable accusations, such as child murder, should not be raised. Close quote. Now, that every sentence 
every word is, forgive me for using this expression here, a stinking lie, that goes without saying. But these things are fabricated now at the present moment. They indicate that the things coming out of the spiritual stream present present among us are taken seriously enough that such vicious means are considered necessary to oppose them. You can rest assured, little sectarian movements, meaning those that are supposed to have only a small number of members, are not bombarded with these sorts of things. We can only hope, I said the same thing in an article I submitted for a forthcoming issue of Dreigliederung, that fewer and fewer people will go on believing that by arguing against such things, they somehow benefit the people who are working within the cloudy sources that we are dealing with here. These people are exceptionally uninterested in what someone might say in response. They have no concern for actually touching upon the truth. They are only interested in fighting, in this manner, against everything that is supposed to move into humanity in the form of a new spirituality. They follow the powers by which they are possessed. I have presented this example to you so that a feeling of the serious nature of these things might be called forth, a feeling that actually must be predominant for all those who feel any serious connection with the anthroposophically oriented spiritual science offered here. <laughs> it is difficult to find the words, which are not really there in the dried-out language of today, to awaken this sense of urgency in the soul. It is so very necessary, but our souls are often lamed or paralyzed. Those things that must fill and penetrate our souls if we are not to fall into a period of all-out decadence, by and large do not enter into them. We cannot continue to act according to ancient wisdom. We should no longer call those things that we take out of ancient streams, in quotes, ideals. We should always make ourselves increasingly aware of the fact that something entirely new must be erected in human evolution. The end of Lecture 3